You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to pick up where we've left off then in Ezra chapter 2 as we've been walking through this story of the Bible together. And I want to invite you to a question I asked last week. Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the, these two books originally in the Hebrew Scripture, were one unit. And in many ways, they, they don't really serve well without one another, especially Ezra. I think Nehemiah can sort of stand on its own because it serves as kind of the conclusion of this series. But, but Ezra certainly needs Nehemiah to complete it, and you'll see that. But Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of renewal. And I invited us to, even this last week, to ask this question deeply, solemnly, write down your answer. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? That is vitality, an, in, an increased sense of life, the abundance of life, the, the sense of joy, energy, enthusiasm, optimism. Where in your life do you feel like these things are lacking? Ezra and Nehemiah are a story of Israel rebuilding their own lives and rebuilding their own community after a whirlwind, after a series of events that changed them forever. And as they are coming back from exile, they are invited to start anew and experience new life. I believe that's what Ezra and Nehemiah offered for these original readers of this text, and I believe it's what that offers for us. The characters here are are profound, that God is working through these leaders. And I'll share more with you about this in the weeks to come, but it gives us a picture of leadership. It gives us a picture of renewal, and it gives us a picture of homecoming. And there's essentially three units to Ezra and Nehemiah. It it actually shouldn't be Ezra and Nehemiah. As I told you, it should be Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to get introduced to Zerubbabel, um, and then then Ezra in chapter 7, and then Nehemiah and the entirety of the the whole book of Nehemiah. And and each of them led in these series of rebuilding and renewing projects that God called them to do. And so I want to invite you to ask as we open this text to, to not miss out on a very personal and intimate way that God can use this text to minister to us. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? Write it down. If you're really brave, share it with someone. If you're really, really brave, ask them to answer where you need renewal. There's many reasons for this, but I'll give you just a couple. That Every so often, sociologists will tell us that, that culture changes, that there are shifts in the culture in, in many ways that happen that you'll never go back. And I believe we're, we're in, in the middle of experiencing one right now. Now, arguably, again, this, this, is, this is a right weekend to think about this. Uh, 20 years ago to the day yesterday, we experienced one of those. A change and a shift in the culture, the way we think about and see the world. And that's a day of pain. That shift is, a, is something that costs. But we're currently experiencing that change. One of the ways that I think we see this even just as, I guess, as the more people I talk to, the desire for renewal in the midst of that change is this. Um, I'll just describe kind of what's happening in terms of maybe, maybe three things. Inflation, supply, and demand. 
right? There's, we're all feeling kind of the strain and, and the cost of things are inflated. The, the, the supply chains are limited or, or their routes are, or are inhibited and, and the demand is higher than it's ever been. And, and so here's the thing, everything costs a little bit more. Everything's just a little bit more difficult to get. Have you felt this? Right? Even just practically, fuel costs more, right? Labor, the cost of labor has gone up. Uh, the cost of supplies and materials has gone up. In many ways, they won't go back down. Something has changed. And, and here's what I, I've realized. The more people I talk to, the more that most of us feel the weight of that, even in our own souls. And it comes out like this. Everything's just a little bit harder right now, isn't it? It's like everything costs just a little bit more. I mean, practically, for some of you who are here this morning, it was a little bit harder to get here than you feel like it should have been, right? It was a little bit more difficult. You found yourself not being quite as on time as you should be, right? The cost to do things is just a little higher. It takes a little more energy, a little more effort. We saw this as we walked through Psalm 119. Even to spend time in God's Word through the last year and a half has been a little bit more difficult. Right? In a time of quarantine, we'd be like, oh, cool, I have all this time and, and privacy and quiet to myself. I can read my Bible more. No one did that. It actually became more difficult to do that. I believe that's an invitation for us to, to cry out to God for renewal. And here's the thing about the answer to that question, where do you want or need to experience renewal? I don't want, those, I don't want the answer to that question to be an enemy uh, or an enemy-wielded weapon against you, right? Some of you, your answer to that question where you feel lifeless or cold or dead, it might already bring up like shame, like well, I wish I wasn't this way. And here, I don't want you to see that. I want you to see the answer to that question is the Holy Spirit's invitation to bring new life. The way I describe this to, to some of our gospel community leaders is like this, like every once in a while my daughters ask me for exactly what I want to give them, right? It's Sunday, it's going to be Sunday afternoon, we're going to sit around on the couch and one or the other might, if I'm fortunate, say, hey, Dad, will you come cuddle with me on the couch? And there's nothing in me that's like, well, pfft, shame on you. You're so needy. I'm going to dive onto the couch. I delight to give my children that. I'm sitting around praying they would ask me that. And here's the thing. I'll give it to them whether they ask for it or not. And I want you to see the answer to this question as something that the Father delights to give you. He's brought it to your heart and to your mind so that you would ask Him for it. So I don't want you to have any shame over this. If there's a place where you're cold, dead, lifeless, and worn out, I want you to see this as an invitation to experience renewal. And the Lord delights, delights for you to ask Him for it. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah invites us to consider just that. But here's one of the last reasons why I want us to think about this text and pray to God for renewal individually as a church. It's my own personal desire for renewal. I don't, I don't want revival for you, you guys. I want it for me. This last year and a half has been exhausting. I know for many of you, this has been a, a disorienting thing. Is you're, you're used to having a pastor where you say, hey, how are you doing? And the pastor just always goes, good, fine, great. I know for many of you, like, hey, how are you doing? And it's like, I'm okay. Not that great, though. Not 100%. The weight of, of like, 
trying to, I mean, thinking I could lead and care for a group of people in the midst of all of the chaos and nonsense that we've witnessed over the last year and a half, it, makes, it just makes me want to take a nap. It makes me want to quit. And so I want to encourage you, I want renewal. I want more joy in Jesus. I want more enthusiasm. I want more optimism about the future. And I get to tell you that many of you have been the ministers of just that kind of renewal. I would say that our church has done a better job caring for me over the last year and a half than I've done caring for it. And I'm so grateful for it. So I desire renewal. I don't, I don't want to just say, you, you guys better liven up. I say, welcome. Welcome to what Ezra and Nehemiah invite us into, a, a period of time where the culture has shifted, things have changed, we feel dismayed, we feel discouraged, feel a little bit worn out, and we want God to make these things new. So last week we saw that the invitation to renewal first is to locate our own stories inside the story that God is weaving. Renewal begins with locating our own story within God's greater story. Read with me the first verse of chapter 1 in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Right, The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and he stirred up Cyrus. So God's doing something in the nations, and now as he's stirred up the King Cyrus, the Persian king who's taken over the Babylonians and now sent them back out of captivity from Babylon into Jerusalem, a place that was destroyed some generation before. Here's how it looks when they came back, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm going to skim through chapter 2, and then we'll read the first seven verses of chapter 3. Now, I'll, I'll explain why we do this. Um, we did this when we walked through the book of Hosea, uh, that there's some lists and certain things that for the purpose of time we're going to kind of skim through, but I'm going to point out the places where I do want you to have a, like your attention span kind of honed in, and then over the course of the week, I would love for you to read this and, and begin to see what lesson, every list, right, every list in the Bible, even though it may seem boring, is, is a teaching tool for something. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, the exiles return. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum and Baana, the number, now here, and notice, I'll, I'll give you the end of this and we'll skip through some headings that you'll see in your Bible. The number of the men of the people of Israel. And then what follows is a list of prominent men in Israel. Skip down to verse 36. The priests, and then what follows a list of the priests. Verse 40, the Levites, and then what follows is a list of the Levites. And verse 43, the temple servants. Verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. Verse 58, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants added up. Verse 59, the following are those who came up from Tel Milah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. So even people that maybe didn't have a lineage from Back to before the captivity, here they're counted. Verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Verse 68, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. 
According to their ability, they gave to their treasury, or gave to the treasury of the work, 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Verse 1 of chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. May God use this word to speak to us give us life and renewal. Israel is returning to their homeland, the promised land, and they will be rebuilding their lives and their community, and they're faced with a a set of circumstances that are unlike the circumstances when they went into exile. Things have changed. That's what sin does. Sin diminishes God's people. It debases them. Last week we saw that experiencing renewal in the middle of that is finding comfort in the sovereignty of God who speaks to us, who stoops down to be with us and for us and then stirs us, as we saw stirring Cyrus and the people to do this thing that God was working out in them. And so renewal then begins with locating our own story within God's greater story. You see the sovereignty of God at work, and that is one of the building blocks of renewal. New life begins, new joy and new hope begins when when you stop for a moment and realize that your story is caught up in a bigger story. When you zoom out a moment. I'll read you this out of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. He goes on to promise that he will go before this king for the sake of his servant Jacob in Isaiah 45 verse 4, and Israel, my chosen people, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you even though you do not know me in order that people may know from the rising of the sun 
and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And so these people began to experience new joy and new hope when they saw that God might be doing something for their good. And I would argue that's exactly what we're invited to experience as well. And so for you who have come in this room, downtrodden, burdened, discouraged, one of the first things we're invited to do is to think is, is it possible that God means to bring you here to renew you, to restore you, to heal you, to make all things new, starting even with your own heart? But this week, we see a renewal through a remnant listed in chapter 2, who first thing first jumps in to sacrificial worship. So we're going to unpack those two things. What, what is meant by this remnant we see in chapter 2? And what is meant by the, the altar and the offerings and sacrificial worship that we see in the first part of chapter 3? The first thing that they do. Here's the good news, I think, through this. God will bring glory to himself through a distinct remnant of sacrificing people. This is what we find here, that that God is going to bring renewal to the nation of Israel by bringing a smaller group of people back to start something over, to rebuild. That that will be the, in fact, that's the word you hear more than any other word, it seems like, in Nehemiah. The the word rebuild, that, that there's going to be a group of people who are a part of something that God has started. For what purpose? Worship. That is to rightly glorify God as God deserves. So back to that question. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? This week we see that in that place where you and I want to experience new life, new joy, revival, rejuvenation, We have to think about what it means to be a remnant, and we have to think about what sacrificial worship looks like. These are the mechanisms, the means by which God brings renewal to his people and even to the world. So, here's what we find, I think. Uh, Some circumstances, this is nicely as I know how to put it, this is the word of a commentarian about the exile. Some circumstances necessitate a radical reassessment of our individual and corporate identity and relationship to God. This is how one commentarian describes the exile and return from exile to a a place of desolation. But I think it is a profound way to think about even our own lives, right? Like, some circumstances are such that you need to stop and reassess who who I am, who we are, and who God is. And then who I am and who we are in light of who God is. I believe the current season we are living in is such a circumstance. As I've shared with many of you, the the events of the last year and a half, if you think about even COVID, COVID hasn't caused as much as it has revealed. Things that were probably true two or three or four years ago, we just didn't know it, we were in denial about it. And the stress of these current circumstances brought those things to the surface. Like you thought you knew your friends and family. You thought you knew, right? You thought you knew a lot of things. And now you realize, ah, maybe you don't. I believe that means we're probably in a circumstance that necessitates us to stop for a moment and reassess our identity 
individually, our identity corporately, and then our identity in light of how we relate to God. How do we then understand what has happened to us? How do we understand what's going on? Because that's the question that the Israelites were faced with. They had been sent off into exile because of their sin, and they were left wondering, has our enemy been victorious? Does the enemy get the last word over us? Has God abandoned us? What went wrong? Is God still able to deliver us? Is God even willing to deliver us? Will God remember his promises to his people? And renewal, revival takes place when you begin to find the answer to these questions in light of who we are and how we relate to God. For Israel, the answers to these questions had largely been negative. They spent a, an entire generation, 70 years as the prophet Jeremiah predicted, from the first of these deportations to, to coming back. There. They, they spent uh, 70 years in exile wondering, why has this happened? What's going on? How, how do we make sense of this? And it forced them to reassess who they were. Does God still love us? Does God still care about us? In light of these circumstances, is it true that we're still God's people? And they had experienced God's judgment from unrepentant sin. But they were invited back to experience hope in light of that. Isaiah 49, 14 says it this way. The purpose of this, verse 13 and 14 come, come to us this way. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But... Zion, that is Jerusalem, the people coming back, said, the Lord's forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, you're, maybe even this morning, you don't believe that there's a God or that Jesus is any, any, sort, of, any sort of incarnation of him. And I'm, I'm so glad you're here. And I want to invite you to, to express that. Like, how can there be a God? I don't think there is... Notice, that's exactly what the Israelites felt. You're, you're welcome here to say, I, I don't know that there's a God. I don't know that he's good. I think if there is a God, he's probably forgotten about me or he hates me and he's trying to destroy me. That's a biblical thing to say. At least it's a place to start, a place of honesty in which we say, I doubt this. I, I'm cynical about this. I, I don't know if this is true. And I would argue that the circumstances are such that you should ask these questions yourself. Who am I then? Who are we? Why are we here? Why do we even exist as the church, as, as people in general? And how do we make sense of all that's happened? For Israel, that judgment that they experienced in exile, even though it was necessary and it was justified, it was not God's final word. For you then, it means that whatever despair or discouragement you are in now, I want to encourage you to consider the possibility that this is not the end of the story. This isn't it. And Ezra and Nehemiah as a, as a whole is an account of renewal, of rekindled hope. Wouldn't you like to leave this place with a little more hope and optimism than that which you brought in? This account, then, is an encouragement in detail 
in painstaking detail. Did you catch all the numbers and names in this? And here's what I would say. That's for some of you today. Maybe the most encouraging thing that you, you could see here is a boring list of people you don't know have never heard of. And then consider the possibility that God loves them and cares for them. Such that, for you and me in this place, again, a boring list of people that no one's ever heard of, can say with confidence that we are loved by God. We are known by God. And some profound mystery like You and I are on a list that maybe no one will ever read, but we're on a list that our Father knows and reads. He takes account of us. And that, again, is is a source for rekindled hope. Okay, I'm not alone. I'm not forgotten. I'm not forsaken. And that, even in the list here, is meant to be an encouragement. So, look at what we see kind of captivated into this list. If you want to, the, the number you want to memorize or think about, it, you'll see an almost identical list to this in Nehemiah chapter 7. So Nehemiah is going to do the same thing. He's going to preach the same sermon. He's like, hey, a bunch of these nameless people that you've never heard of are loved and cherished by God. They're delivered and redeemed by the Father. You've never heard of them. You don't know who they are. You can't even pronounce them, right? There's some really good, there's some really good potential middle names on this list. I just want you, to, I want you to notice that. If anyone's thinking through that, I don't know if they make first names, but they make some really strong middle names. And they make a great story, right? I've never heard of that name. Exactly, right? And, and the same list shows up, same sermon in Nehemiah chapter 7. You can prepare yourself for hearing that. I'm going to say the same thing when we get to that. But the list concludes with kind of a total. Did you see it in verse 64 of chapter 2? The whole assembly together was 42,000, right? So why is that number important? Again, first I told you, because God cares. God knows them. God knows them by name, cares to answer those questions about who they are and is there a plan for me in the affirmative. But the second thing we see is that we have what emerges is one of the primary themes of Ezra and Nehemiah, a word I've used and I'll continue to use, and that is a remnant. In many ways, the summary of Ezra and Nehemiah can be found in chapter 9, verse 8. And this is what Ezra says when he steps onto the scene. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a what? A remnant. And to give us a secure hold within his holy place. Did you hear that? He has a place for us. He has a plan for us. In order that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. In many ways, that's the story. That's the encouragement of Ezra and Nehemiah. That idea of a remnant, that idea of of a people whittled down. And friend, that is one of the most important ingredients that you and I have to embrace if we're going to experience new joy and new life. A small number. So about 40,000. But here's the thing. If, If you go back to the book of Numbers... The book of Numbers is a, is a, is a census. It's actually very, it actually only has a couple of these lists at the beginning and at the end. Chapter 1 and I believe chapter 25 or 26, probably 26. Um, and there's a list, a census of the 600,000 people that came out of slavery, wandered across the wilderness, and even though they died, the 600,000 people that were invited into the promised land. That's the numbers, right? You get it. The number of people. Yeah. So, so it's a census of, of the people delivered from slavery and granted passage into the promised land. Now remember, Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of a second exodus. 
But even compare that. As they flourished for, for generations in and multiplied in the promised land, their number is, is in many ways, is beyond what we can really count. We don't know how many Israelites or Jews lived when we think of Judah and Israel. We don't know how many there were. In many ways, because they were scattered, they're a diaspora in many ways. But at the very least, at, at the most conservative estimate, there was probably about a million. And then when the Babylonians killed many and then ran all of the rest of them off, it says only 40,000 came back. So even at a conservative estimate, if you think about the people first who came into the land, 600,000 strong, we're looking at a measly 40,000 who were coming into the land. That number had been whittled down. That number had shrunk Maybe think of it this way. It was a very unimpressive number. It was a very unimpressive group of people. A ragtag group of people. But here's what I want to tell you. This is how God works. (laughs) Choosing to fulfill his promise through a weak and old barren couple. A foreign prostitute a band marching around the walls of Jericho, a shepherd boy, a teenage prophet, an unwed virgin, a bunch of fishermen, uneducated, unimpressive, according to Acts 4 through 6, a blasphemer, a blasphemer and a persecutor of Christians. This is who God delights to work through a remnant, a whittled-down group of people. In many ways, to fulfill the prophecy we see elsewhere in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that the impressiveness of this whole circumstance is not the people. It's God. So, this means that one of the first places you and I experience renewal is embracing the fact that we are going to be a remnant contending for God to work. Begging, longing for God to work. Powerless, unimpressive, and yet seeking holiness. Living in desperation for God to deliver and to redeem. Seeking obedience over influence. The remnant is just how God works. Look, you and I, you and I are sitting here Today, 2,000 years after, 12 people no one had ever heard of, and they failed at first, committed to give their lives to Jesus. And they started a world-changing movement that we're gathering to commemorate even today. Nobodies who God worked through. Right? I love, I love the history of it, right? That's... Uh, you know, if, you, if you're a study of like world history, then there's like this, this place where as, as, a, as kind of a, a secular view of history has tried to change it. But like, so normally we think in terms of dates as B.C., before Christ, right? Or A.D., year of our Lord, fill in the blank, right? So like, for example, here we're at, you know, 539 B.C. Um, but today it is, it's not 2021 A.D., it's A.D. 2021. All you history nerds are really excited. I made sure to help you with that. Anno Domini, year of our Lord, 2021. So the secular view of history is like, 
well, okay, we'll count it that way, but they, they replaced it with what's known as the common era. Have you ever heard this? So instead, this, is, this, would like, this would be like 539 BCE, before a common era. And today is 2021, common era, like since the common era. And you're left to wonder, like, what, what is it that happened in that common era? Like, what, <laughs> what is it about that era that is common? Like, and, and, and you're left with this kind of like, man, there's something going on here. History even changed through the most unimpressive, powerless, uneducated people at the time. The world changed. That's how God works. You see this, that Jesus says, even to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't work by the world's standards. Here's what I want to encourage you. You will never experience renewal, revival, and new joy until you embrace the view that God works through the remnant. God works through the unimpressive. God doesn't want to share his glory with you. If you do it because you're impressive, then people will praise you. But if God uses people who are unremarkable, then we're left, as Paul tells the Corinthians, going like, man, boast in the Lord. I can't believe God would do that and that he would use those people. 40,000 out of what might be a million? Jesus says narrow is the path and narrow is the gate. He says, look, you're not going to rule and experience this glory like the Gentiles do. You're not going to lord your will over others. The greatest among you will be like a slave and a servant. You will never experience joy in this life until you embrace that. And most of the sorrow and frustration that's happened, I've seen in the last season, is a, is a direct rejection of what Jesus says. The world's going to hate you. Gates narrow. Kingdom's not in this world. If the kingdom run to this world, then we'd be, we'd be carrying swords and killing people. We think that we need power and influence and numbers, don't we? But here's the thing, you're right. If you want to enforce your will, you do need power. You need a majority. You need lots of influence and resources. But here's the thing. That's never how God brings about renewal in the Bible. It's always a faithful minority who don't care what the world thinks and don't care to operate by the world's rules. They confess their sin and their need for God without any care of what people think, only what God thinks. They pray for things without a care for what people think of them. That's just how God worked. I mean, God whittled down the armies of Gideon. He whittled down the crowds that followed Jesus. And these people were whittled down through exile so that the most powerful and amazing renewal they might experience comes from knowing that God has done it. That's just how God works. So here, here's the encouragement. If you feel like you've ruined your life, right? If you feel like you're unable to cope, like you, like you feel like there's no hope for you, then I want to encourage you, like, you're just the kind of person God delights to use, <laughs> If you come in here and you feel powerful, feel like you're a big deal and people ought to listen to you, people ought to do that, they need to know what you know, okay, 
cool. I'll be here when God crushes you. God doesn't work that way. Jesus is the one who became the rejected remnant that was poured out as a sacrifice. Jesus was the one who came as an unremarkable. I love the prophet even says, like he wasn't even, he wasn't even handsome. Like there was nothing about him. They'd be like, oh, that guy's amazing. And yet God delighted to come be with and for his people in Christ and do something amazing. Not through a king, not through a wealthy person. He had no possessions, right? Nothing. He didn't even have a biological family to pass on a heritage. And yet, this is how God loves to work. This is how God delights to work. And we trust God and experience renewal. So here, here's the thing. On, on, in many ways, the, the, the trick to experiencing new life and renewal is that all you have to bring to God is nothing. And most people can't do it. God really, in creation and redemption, uses nothing. That's how Paul uses the language in Romans and Corinthians, right? Things that were not. Can you do it? Can you come to God with nothing? It's harder than you think. So here's the second part that begins as it turns from the list of a remnant. It turns to the people who are worshiping sacrificially. Maybe the way I would ask it is this, as as we kind of think through this. What do you think of first? What comes first in your life? And when they entered into the land, it says seven months in there, right? You'll see in verse 8, the second year, that's when they start laying the foundation. We'll talk about that next week. But the first thing they do in the seventh month is they build the altar. So here's, here's a profound statement about just what it means to be human. What you worship comes first. So when I say, like, what's the first and most important thing in your life? And that thing is the thing that you worship. Now, of course, you probably don't use the words worship. You would hate to say that, right? Like, think about it. What's the first thing in your day? And you'd be, you'd be forced to say something like, I worship coffee, or I, I worship brushing my teeth, or I, I worship taking a bath, or whatever, right? But here's the thing. It is the most important thing, and it reveals something about your heart. That's all that we're being invited to consider here. What comes first is first. It, it's, a, it's a thing we exalt and we love. And we're not supposed to deny it. We're supposed to embrace it. We're supposed to go like, yeah, that's absolutely true. That's how God made us. God made us to behold him, to simply enjoy that which is glorious. And I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis here, but like part of glory is passing out the worship, right? There's a sense, like grandparents in the room know this, right? You don't really love your grandkids until you've shown pictures of them to everyone. Right? It is the, it's the right thing to do. You're like, have you seen? That's, that's how you share glory, right? For some of you, maybe it's a relationship. Have you, have you met so-and-so? You know, I love this person. I love this thing. And here's the thing. The thing you love is the thing you won't shut up about. It's first in your life. And the second thing we see here is new life, new joy comes from right worship. And the first thing they did, did you catch that? They built an altar to God. And then did you hear the litany of sacrifices and offerings? Holy smokes. 
Zerubbabel shows up again, right? They built the altar in verse 2, and they placed burnt offerings on it. Why? Because it was written in the law of Moses. They, rec- they were going back. We saw this last week. They were going back to something that they had lost. They, and then they put the altar in place, even though they were, hear the language of the remnant in verse 3, they're like, they were afraid of the outside people. Like, you, you would think, like, you would think when you come home from exile, people would be really glad to see you, right? Right, but Jesus even says it. The prophet is not welcome in his hometown. But what happened? 40,000 come back from exile, and they're afraid of the people who are around them. You'd think they'd be like, oh, this is great, we're all home. Nope. And then what happened? Burnt offerings, 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 feast of booths. Remember this? The feast of booths is the feast of tabernacles, the celebration, the, many of the celebrations Jesus kind of reinterprets for us in the Gospel of John. But basically it was like camping in the name of remembering that God had blessed them with the harvest and, and brought them through Egypt intense, right? So it's a celebration of what God has done. And then more burnt offerings, offerings for the new moon, all the appointed feasts, offerings for everyone who made a free will offering for the Lord. Like, so I love that. People made offerings and they were like, that's amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice a burnt offering for the offering you made, right? It's like offerings for offerings, verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the temple wasn't even laid. They hadn't built the temple and they hadn't built the walls. But the first thing that they had to do is acknowledge who God was. And they offered sacrifices and offerings. Think of it this way. If you want worldly glory and worldly greatness, you acquire. You are known in the world by what you can acquire. right? Fame, fortune, influence, power, position. And if you want to impose your will in the world, you need to acquire. But again, that's not how God brings renewal. God brings renewal through what we give up, not by what we acquire. In this life, we give up so that eternally we will receive. For many of you, this means that like, you're going to be stuck in a season of misery until you think about the thing that God's calling you to give up. Because what are the sacrifices saying? They're saying, like, I can burn this, and God's still good. You could, you could set this thing on fire, and they're good things, right? They're the best of things. They're the, they're the first fruits. They're, the, they're the, the, the fatted calf. They're the best. And we usually think, well, we need to protect the best. And, and the most, one of the most worshipful things you can do is say, like, you can burn this, and I'm still, I'm still beloved by the Father. Sin, pleasure, you name it. In the end, it probably owns you. And that's why we give it away. We lay it down. And it's the best way to experience new life. You give up the old life that was slave to that thing. In sacrifices, God is saying, I'm not going to make you pay for your sin against me. This other thing will pay the price. And he welcomes us. He welcomes us in because of the sacrifice that's made. First thing is first. And what you worship will come first. And renewal comes from worshiping God rightly. Renewal happens 
when the things that shouldn't be first are displaced by the things that should. I think we could even go so far as to say in in chapter 3 here in the first seven verses, renewal happens when the things that shouldn't be first are burned. And they, they rise as a sacrifice to God, a pleasing aroma, which God says, that's right, those things can't satisfy you anyway. Right? The, the fatted calf is delicious until you're hungry again. Right? And, and there's this sense in which you go like, man, I, I could live without this. And that's a pleasing aroma because God then gets to pour real blessing and life into us. But only after we let go of the things that hinder them. Renewal happens when you see these things rightly. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. (laughs) The best things I can tell you is, this isn't a suggestion. This is actually a command. Um, And an anxiety for your life is... It's a nature of, it's, it comes with just being in a fallen, broken world. But there's a way that we can worry about a thing. There's a way that we can care about a thing that actually worships it. So he says, don't be anxious. And he tells this beautiful story about birds and death and God's provision. Verse 31, he says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles are the ones who seek after those things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, they'll be added to you. Think of it this way. Without sacrifice and worship, there's no need for walls. There's no need for a temple. Because without right sacrifice and worship, there's nothing inside worth protecting. And so the first thing that comes first is that they come before God and say, we have sinned and you have welcomed back. And this sacrifice is a pleasing aroma by which we know we are welcomed back into the life of the Father. We are welcomed back into his promise. He has not failed us or abandoned us. And then when you know that, you should build a temple around that. You should build Nehemiah. You should build walls around that. But otherwise, you don't have anything worth protecting. So listen to the encouragement that comes first on the list. Right? There are lists all over the Old Testament. Now, after all, Ezra is a scribe. Right? He's an accountant. He is pay attention to de- pay his attention to detail. He translates scripture. Pretty awesome. So, in one sense, this pr- precise list is just the nature of how Ezra is wired by God. Good guy. We all need these people in our life. Pay attention to detail. It's how God made them, how he serves. But they're also supposed to provide us with a running commentary of the status of the people who would experience renewal. They're the living portions that God will pour himself into. But they're a connection, and I'll land on this, they're a connection to a lineage They're all calling back to the place where they came from. You even see like there's 12 leaders in in that first little set that includes Zerubbabel, as as if to kind of hint at the 12 tribes of Israel are not without hope and without leadership and without deliverers. They're brought back. And then you see a list of all these things. And that's their lineage. They know their lineage. 
I love it. In fact, it's so important. Did you catch that? It pointed out in verse 59, there were some in the camp that were from Tel Malah, Tel Harshah, Cherub, Adan, and Emer. They could not prove their father's houses or their descent. Right? Did you hear that? Like the lineage is important. But they're like, but still, they're coming. I mean, they're, they're not in this other, but they were here. We wanted to count them. You know, Ezra's like, we count them. They're going to come. They're going to experience God's renewal. Even though we didn't know in verse 59 whether or not they belong to Israel. So look how we are renewed. We see ourselves as a remnant through which God will be faithful and work. Connected to a promise he began in the past. These people know their lineage and they worship as a result. They offer sacrifices as a result. They're connecting themselves back to something that God began long ago. Even negatively, even through the exile. And even through the ones that can't prove their, you know, they didn't have 23 and me, right? They didn't know their fathers. And yet they're like, no, I'm with them. Do you hear, you can, hear, can you hear those people being like, man, I don't know who my dad is, but like, I'm with these people who are going to experience God's renewal, right? Renewal comes when you and I are able to trace our lineage back to what God began and promised for us long ago. There are many ways we do this. We do this every week. We sing about it on a regular basis. But here's one I'll give you. We trace our lineage all the way back to what God began. We trace our spiritual lineage all the way back to Adam. Remember them? Think of it this way. Our lineage goes back to a man and a tree. And this man had one job. Be faithful with respect to this tree. Adam in the garden. A man and a tree. And he couldn't. And we own that spiritual lineage, because neither do we. God asks one thing, love me above all, and we're like, eh, I just want to love these other things. And we trace our spiritual lineage all the way back to Adam, a man and a tree, a man called to faithfulness with a tree. And then we follow our lineage to another man, the second Adam that we know as Jesus and you can think about them the same way, a man and a tree. And where the first one failed and couldn't obey God with respect to the tree, the second one has succeeded by dying and being hung on it. And where Adam had failed to obey God about the tree, Jesus has come and given us a new lineage by hanging in our place on it. Adam didn't, but Jesus did. The first man failed with respect to the tree. The second man succeeded by being willing to be, he was willing, he was willing to be hung on it, to die on it, to be betrayed and hung naked on it. And now that tree, if you think about it, is a symbol of failure of human beings in the garden. And it's a symbol of new life for those of us who behold Jesus on it. It's now the lineage that we share in Christ. And love has now delivered us in Christ where judgment was deserved. And we look at the tree where Adam failed and we see the tree on which Jesus was hung and we have new hope. Jesus was the one who was the rejected remnant. And Jesus was the one who poured out himself as a living sacrifice, sufficient, pleasing to God, allowing us to enter his presence, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the very blood of the perfect Son of God. We should have hung on that tree. 
Yet God hung on that tree in our place. And we find renewal in a ragtag band of people who give ourselves willingly to experience that kind of grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You did for us what Adam could not do for us. We thank you, God, that you came to be with us and for us in Christ. God, we thank you that this story for Ezra and Nehemiah has hope for us, that you will not forget or abandon your people. So even now, if there's some in this room who feel abandoned, lost, and forgotten, would you use this encouragement, even the list, the list, the list of people that we've never met, might you encourage us, renew us, that we would know in Christ we are on a list. We are known by the Father. Maybe for the rest of us, we... We don't really like the thought of the way that you renew us. We want the glory and we don't want to give it to you. Would you help us even now to renounce worldly ways for power and influence and begin to embrace new life as a remnant? We might not look like much in this world. And yet in the life to come, we will be co-heirs with Christ. We will reign over all of creation with him. Would you renew us in that? Help us to renounce worldly ways of operating. But Lord, there's also things that we have to give up. There are things that we're holding on to. Might even today be a day that we we see the perfect sacrifice of Jesus who was willing to lay down his own life for us and so then we begin to have a looser grip on the things that have a grip on us. Maybe for some of us it's repentance of sin. It's experiencing grace by turning from ways of thinking and living. Might you give us renewal in that? We don't sacrifice these things because of any merit on our part. We sacrifice them because we know there is grace waiting for us. Help us to confess what's true and experience the grace that comes from knowing that you could burn everything and we have everything we need in Jesus. God, we love you for the gift you've given us in Jesus and we long to be renewed in joy and spirit because of it. Do that in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.